I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. Every good podcast starts. We should starts. go do some karaoke. We should, yes. <laughs> social, social good karaoke. I've really enjoyed doing this first season of More Than Profit for many reasons. On some levels, I've personally learned a ton and connected with some amazing people doing awesome things. It's also stretched me a bit outside my own comfort zone, which generally is a good thing. But I've also had a ton of fun interviewing some of my friends, hearing their stories and sharing with folks the impressive ways in which they're working to figure things out. More Than Profit is a podcast with a goal of engaging through story the opportunity before us to not separate financial profit from community flourishing. Therefore, on this week's episode, it was such a laugh to spend some quality time with my friend, Ben Renoweber, and to catch up on his new work around the future of work and leveraging large data sets to provide better services with increased outcomes to companies and communities, and ultimately, individual people's lives. If you know anything about Ben, he has a powerful presence and does everything with an immense passion driven by his underlying affection for people. What I learned is that this came from some pretty interesting and amazing people themselves, his parents. Grew up in Louisville. Neither of my parents are from here. Uh, and they moved for uh, my father to become a professor at the University of Louisville. Uh, when my father pitched the idea to my mother, uh, it was a three-year time frame. And the way he pitched it was, I'm going to spend three years teaching kids for whom this is their first generation in their family going to college and probably their only shot at it. And we'll do it for three years and then we'll continue with the original plan, which is to go somewhere else uh, to a more prestigious university. Uh, and that didn't happen. Uh, he <laughs> came and he fell in love uh, with the city and with the university and with that part of the mission. And this was about what what time period? This was in the late 70s. Late 70s. And you so were young whippersnapper. I was uh, not born yet. <laughs> um, so in what... Uh, an odd piece of my life is that at one point my father was a priest and my mother was a nun uh, and they left separately, but they both very much had values that were other than let me maximize the financial possibilities of my career. Uh, and I think that very much permeated my growing up. In so, what ways? Well, I mean, I think what my parents said very clearly to me was it is great to take care of you and yours, but if that is all you do, with all the investment that's been made in you, you have failed. Hmm. Uh, and I think that was always sort of a part of the, the framing and the, and the upbringing. Is there a uh, particular memory you have uh, from your father or mother that is kind of stuck in your brain uh, that has really helped shape that thinking for you personally? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I remember very clearly, uh, so my father took a second job so that I could go to a private school uh, because my parents, both as first generation, were, very, were insecure about whether or not I was going to stay in the middle class. And they definitely had a feeling like, you know, they wanted for me the opportunity to have options to be whatever I wanted to be. Uh, and I remember pulling up to this school that I knew that my father was working weekends so that I could attend and... We had this like beat up old Buick uh, and we were in this parking lot and I felt embarrassed about all these other cars that were there. And I 
turned to my dad and I was like, dad, Hey, I know we're poor. And he just laughed. And he said, son, first off, this is not poverty, Mm. right? Poverty is not driving a car. Uh, and second off, we are so rich, uh, in the ways that we want to be. That's awesome. And so what happened next? So you, you, you're raised by pretty interesting couple, former nun, former priest, instilled these amazing values of, of community and other otherness. Where, where'd you go after that? Uh, so I looked around at uh, a lot of different schools. It wasn't, I mean, also just part of the cultural programming. I didn't realize that it was possible to not go to college. Uh, also growing up in Louisville, Kentucky, I didn't realize it was possible to not go to the NCAA tournament. <laughs> I just didn't know that was a thing. I wasn't until I went to school at George Washington and they were like, we got into the NCAA tournament, which they had for the first year of my freshman year in like 15 years. And I was like, I don't, what do you mean? And then I vaguely remember that there was this thing called the NIT that we did once when I was like nine. Uh, so I didn't know you couldn't go to college. Everyone went to college and I was told you go to college and then you do some interesting things there. Uh, and that's, you know, that's how, what you do. So I went to George Washington. Uh, I majored in international affairs, which was a great decision in lots of ways. Uh, but mostly because it was something I cared about. So I was positive that I was going to go, uh, give kids in developing countries immunizations. That was my, I was going to do that. I was wondering what you do with international affairs. Yeah. Would you like fries with that? In like six <laughs> languages. <laughs> uh, so I spent one summer in the Dominican Republic and then I uh, was very convinced in a 19 year old way that the, the Latin America was never going to make it economically. Just never you know, I was positive about that because of what I had experienced there. Uh, and so I ended up studying Russian because I needed a, a language. Uh, and I went there for a semester and I lived in St. Petersburg and I taught English uh, and that actually led me in a roundabout way to Bosnia, uh, where this post-war country, and what was really fascinating to me about Bosnia and actually about Russia was how clear they were about what parts of their culture they valued more than money. Hmm. And, or alongside money. I mean, it was there in Russia, there was this real sense of loss. Like, yes, our economy does not function in the way that it did. And we feel at that point um, sort of impotent on the global stage where once we were powerful. Uh, But really, they felt the loss of that sense of community and purpose that was such a part of their culture for the previous century. Hmm. You know, you go to Russia and you ask, like, what are you most proud of as a country? They defeated the Nazis. We were like an ancillary little like speck in that conflict, and they did that. And it, you look at the numbers, that's really true. And they, you know, they were trying to accomplish something. And then in Bosnia, we used to, we used to joke all the time, you know, you guys have Starbucks and we have coffee. Uh, and in the Bosnian language, you don't have coffee as something you consume. You go to coffee. It is a process that you do either with yourself or with your friends. And I was so, I was so struck by that. Um, at the same time that I recognized that people in poverty, the desperation and the lack of choices that come out of that are really disempowering. Okay. So there was this weird piece of me growing up seeing the choices that my parents made, both that were beyond and different than maximizing the money that they could make, um, but also aware of not being poor sure. and how important that was. And then same thing as I you know, got through my formative times in college and after, 
really living in cultures where the poverty was a real driver of all sorts of terrible things. Sure. But wealth was not the end objective. So set the stage here, context-wise, you're in Bosnia. What, what time period is this? So this is, I got there the first time in 2000, and then I went back to live in 2003. Okay. And I was there for two and a half years. Wow. So in your travels to the Dominican, Russia, and Bosnia, did you have, did you have any similar Buick moments where you're reminded of, of kind of this, this thing from your father, this, this subtle kind of, hey, we're not poor. This is, this is not poverty. Just, and then to see in, in the people that you're interacting with just a genuine sense of community despite potentially their, their condition or their, oh, their circumstance. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think everywhere you would go, even as a you know, 20-something-year-old, I got paid locally a huge amount of money. I was never, I was never, you know, like was never a question in any of those circumstances that I had means that most of the people that I hung around with did not. Um, and I could leave, which is its own. You it's know, an the, interesting thing, isn't it? The freedom to leave, to change, to have power over your circumstances mm-hmm. Agency over your own situation. Agency over your own situation to me is it is this incredible value, and that was sort of piece of what was interesting to me about you know. I saw part of what I did in the Balkans was microfinance, so we would very small loans, very poor people, mostly women, but not entirely. Um, And what that really meant for people was well beyond the money that could be earned. Hmm. You know, it was the control over how they spent their days, even if what that meant. You know, I heard this great joke a couple weeks ago an entrepreneur is the sort of person who works 80 hours a week so they don't have to work 40 (laughs) right even what that meant was you know you're up at 5 a.m and you're baking empanadas so that you can be out on the street selling those empanadas when you could be working somewhere else if that's an option right so if you have that agency um and you so you work twice as hard but it's your work it's love Mm -hmm. and i think that gets into what has essentially become a lifelong obsession, which is why do people work? Yeah. Well, and that kind of leads into, so, you know, there's what shaped you from your parents, your experiences in Louisville, then Eastern Europe, Dominican. What's becoming your own? At this point in your life, you're in your, probably your twenties. Yeah. Sort of. Right. Right. What, what kind of rules are now driving Ben's life? Like what, what would you say you kind of co-opted as, as some of the, the things that you, you hold dear, not just lessons you've learned from your parents? Yeah. Um, it's funny. So I, a group of my friends from middle school got together and, uh, over the fall we went and we had a halftime party. Hmm. We sort of were like, Hey, we're probably statistically, we are at about half of our lifespan. Uh, what are we thinking about that? The last half and the next half. And I think I'm, I'm extraordinarily fortunate that I do have so much agency to choose what kind of job I want to have, to choose where I want to be. Uh, and so I think there is some responsibility with that power uh, to be using that well. I mean, I have a lot of investment has been made in me as a human being, um, as in you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think part of what I'm really thinking about is how do I use that, how do we use that uh, to really create opportunities for other people. I heard this great talk the other day by Matthew Barzen, who was the American ambassador to uh, the UK. And 
he was talking about letting people reach their potential, but not as a, a, a static end, right? There's no winning life, mm. right? But to create opportunities for people to find a struggle that is worthy of them, yeah, right? I mean, I think the sort of the power of my education and the fact that I took a lot of advantage of that education, you know, sure. people who are like, oh, you're so privileged, which is totally true. I am. But what that meant was that when I worked hard, that got better results. It didn't mean I didn't work hard. For sure. So, so the Balkans, you're still away from, from Louisville. You go, you go where? You go to grad school, right? So, and yeah. So I came back. So my father got sick uh, in 2005 and passed at the end of 2005. So I came back here, took care of him, took care of my mom, uh, and spent a year here. And then while he was sick, one of his... Sort of was like, well, okay, now it's a good time to study to go to grad school. Uh, so then went uh, went to grad school, met my wife in Boston singing karaoke in the basement <laughs> bar Pizzeria Uno's on JFK, which recently closed. That's a great uh, story. Yeah. Do you remember what you were singing? Oh, uh, it was Kamikaze Karaoke. <laughs> so you don't know what the song is until you get up. That's great. Uh, and I got Build Me Up Buttercup. <laughs> Even better. Yeah, duet. So I uh, looked around for the hottest girl in the bar. There and, you go. Uh, yeah. And now you're married. And now we're married. That's awesome. So go to grad school. Go to grad school. Studied public policy and business. Okay. Because I was really interested in what that, how do you use business principles to empower people? So this whole time, you know. Yeah, I got obsessed. <laughs> I got obsessed. I've been obsessed. Okay. The, I've been obsessed the whole time. Yeah. Uh, you know, what does it look like to give people agency and a voice? And then what does that mean for them? That's great. And there's lots of different dimensions to that. Yeah. So... You came back, which in our community, many communities, that's not always the case. But you you ended up moving back to Louisville. Yeah. So after grad school, I went to go work for the Boston Consulting Group. Okay. Uh, where I was with a lot of people who had very different motivations uh, than I did, hmm. coming from very different backgrounds, or very similar backgrounds. Uh, and... I think, you know, I will forever be grateful to them for all that they taught me and for all that they brought to me uh, and for the experiences that they let me have uh, and for the way that they let me go mm-hmm. when they realized and I realized that it wasn't a good fit anymore. Mm. And then that's kind of what brought you back to Louisville? Yeah, I ended up, uh, I ran into the CEO of this nonprofit that had been really impactful in my life, the Kentucky YMCA. And so that was a nonprofit dedicated to empowering youth voices particularly marginalized youth voices. Uh, and the CEO was on a train that I was on from New York to DC. And he just got on it. It was just one of those like finger of God moments where you're like, Hey, what are you doing? You know, I haven't seen you in forever. And he said, Oh, I'm retiring. I said, Who's going to take your job? And he said, well, we don't know. I think they're going to do a national search. Hmm. I was like, well, I'm national. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was on, I just, I rolled off a client. They were rolling me onto another one. Uh, and I had gone through this interview process, but I was really still soul searching because it was, it was a substantial salary cut. Uh, sure. My wife, the Yankee, uh, I had to say, hey, honey, what would you think about moving to Kentucky? She said, I have never thought about Kentucky full stop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but she could see that I was really passionate about it. And I was like, <laughs> having played this game before or seen this game before, I was like, well, honey, we'll just go for three years. And we'll oh, work for this organization. Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I think the, what we found in being here was both a 
an organization that I could be really passionate about and then a community that was of a size that was really, you know, she says all the time, it is a canvas that is big enough to be worth painting on and small enough that everyone's paint matters. Hmm. That's a really good picture. Okay, so born and raised in Louisville, yep. moved away, yep. got some experience, really impacted by your parents, seen a lot, learned a lot, trying to figure out how to use your power for the for the benefit of others. Uh, what what drives you today? Like as you as you think about community, coming back now more than three years into the into yeah. the commitment with your wife, like what what's really driving Ben uh, as you think about your life today? Uh, and what you're kind of pressing into in the near term. So I think the the piece that drives me right now is that the same thing that drives most people most of the time that we let get totally masked by money, right? So you get into any of the scholarship around what actually motivates people. Probably my favorite popularizer of this stuff is Daniel Pink. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, what motivates people? It's autonomy, mastery, purpose and community. And so when I left the Y, I did this tech startup mobile serve that was engaging volunteers. And, you know, the conversation that people would have with me all the time is like, I don't, I mean like, yeah, I would totally volunteer. I just, I just don't know where to volunteer, which is total malarkey, right? If you cared enough to try and figure out where to volunteer, you would Google it. Right. For sure. So it's not actually the case. Uh, what gets people to volunteer is, a personal invitation and what gets them to come back are those things, autonomy, mastery, purpose, community, right? And so part of what we did with the tech platform was try to help enable that. But part of what gets me fired up now is still being trying to think about those things. Like what does it mean for someone in our community to have those things, Mm -hmm. to have choices about what they do with their time and their resources to, be during the course of their investment of that time, be validated for the skills that they have or are building to be a part of something that is bigger than themselves, to be creating something powerful and then to be doing that in community. Hmm. I mean, so that's the, when you ask me sort of broadly, what does, what, what motivates me or what, what gets me fired up? It's those things. I want to be doing those things for myself uh, and I want to be doing them in a way that gives more people in our community access to those things. That's great. And so recently you you started a new gig. So yeah, quite an interesting past, especially with a recent tech startup, but more recently, really an exciting new venture. Yeah. Uh, what drove you to kind of plug in there and what are you... What are you excited about with that opportunity for, for our community? Yeah, so uh, I am the, the newly minted director of the Future of Work Initiative uh, in Louisville, which was funded by uh, a grant from Microsoft uh, and sort of really brought here by uh, the city of Louisville. Uh, it's the purpose of the initiative is to really establish Louisville as a hub for the data economy. So thinking about the technologies that are coming, how do we position this relatively small city on the border of the South and the Midwest as being on the cutting edge of this tech revolution? And particularly, how do we do that in a way that is inclusive of people who basically missed out on the last couple of tech revolutions? 
Uh, and what's fun about it is that lots and lots of people here and nationally have identified Louisville as as being on the cusp of doing these things. Uh, so it's really what fun. Are, what are those indicators that you're that you're hearing? Yeah. So so if you think about the the pieces of what the next tech revolution is, it's really the big data revolution. So the last three, uh, personal computing, internet, and mobile, all kind of started on the coasts, jumped from the west coast to the east coast. A lot of cons- computer science folks drove that, which means that it was those problems that got solved, right? The people that understood the technology and then also had access to the business experience and finance that they needed to grow businesses using that technology. Uh, So this is really uh, an intentional attempt to change that for this next tech revolution. So big data, uh, you know, people talk a lot about AI, they talk a lot about the internet of things, but basically the whole premise is recognizing that your data has value and using it to connect dots in order to enable you to make better decisions. So that involves a lot of, so there are some technical pieces to that, right? That's, that is very clear. But I think the most interesting parts of the next tech revolution have nothing to do with the tech. As Jeff Guam, as a professor at the University of Louisville says, the tech has evolved to the point where we can actually solve, start solving problems. So what does solving those problems look like? Well, first off, we have to say, well, what are the problems we're trying to solve? Oh, we're trying to solve as a society, let's say, we want to reduce healthcare costs and we want to improve outcomes for the investments that we're making. We make the most investment per capita of any country in health and we get some of the worst results for that investment. Well, why? So the premise of big data is that we could then go in and say, well, let's look at what are the drivers of those costs. Oh, okay, it's ER utilization is a big driver. Well, what causes people to use the ER? Well, lots of things do, but most of those things have nothing to do with clinical care. They have everything to do with social causes, health-related determinants, uh, things like if you are evicted, you are likely to visit the ER at least twice in the next six months because that's where you can get health care, right? So what would it look like for us to be able to say, oh, this person is in danger of eviction based on information that we have pulled from these variety of sources and intervene upstream, you know, $400 to pay some utility bills stops that person from getting evicted, which is hugely disruptive for their lives, terrible for children in that house in terms of their educational outcomes, in terms of their, you know, sense of place and purpose. And also costs $20,000 for those two ER admissions. So all of these pieces align. It is in the financial interests, it is in the moral interests, it is in the educational interests of our society to prevent that. And if we can spend $400, that is a great investment. Yeah. But we have to have the information to say that it's worth to spend those $400. Yeah, and see, that that's an interesting perspective. Because I think some of the conversations you and I have had offline around AI automation are just the, the scary factor. Yeah. The job replacement, the totally, the um, kind of just the impact that this is going to have on the future of our of our economy, the workforce, the labor market, and just how inevitably it could lead to increased exclusion from or increased barriers to employment. So it's interesting to hear that perspective, and, and it kind of ties, I think, a little bit to what drives you uh, as it relates to kind of your upbringing, leading to this moment uh, at Microsoft and the future of work. 
how do you think what you're doing at Microsoft ties uh, and what you're excited about there and, and even, you know, things you'll get into in the future, even beyond this, this work that really drive you in this, this next season of your life? What are you really excited to press into? Yeah. Well, I mean, so first off, I don't want to minimize at all any of the potential oh, sure. like disruption that this technology or the automation pieces of this can bring. I think there's, there's real potential for this to be destructive if not dealt with well. Um, I think what drives me is really the potential to recognize value in all these little places where we just haven't been able to do the analysis that will enable us to recognize that value, to create that that thing. I mean, part of what was fun for me about creating a company was, oh, there's all this time that has been wasted by, you know, in our case, it was guidance counselors physically recording service hours or uh, companies, you know, be trying to get their employees to this place at this time in this number. That that all of a sudden could turn around to time that that guidance counselor had to spend with those students, right? Doing the things that really added human value. So to me, part of what's exciting about this, looking at some of these new technologies is that a lot of the stuff that's going to get reduced or eliminated is stuff that stinks. That's drudgerous, dangerous, uh, just where if we can reallocate those human resources to do more things, that's really fun. Now it's possible that what happens is, you know, oh, that job goes away and for that person, there's not another alternative. I don't want to in any way minimize that. But it is not the history of technology that that's how this worked out. You know, when we invented the loom and made it cheaper for people to have clothing, that didn't mean that all of the people who were involved in that all of a sudden didn't have jobs. It meant that we had more than one set of clean clothes. You know, we didn't reduce the amount of housework that was being done in a house by automating a bunch of it. We increased our standards of cleanliness. Yeah, that's interesting. And so I think that's a lot of the stuff. You talk to some of the people, you know, about what's going to happen. Well, it's not that we're not going to have auditors. It's that they're going to be able to get more fraudulent transactions and they're going to start auditing code and all these other things that they're going to be creating value. It's just different value. Yeah, and I think what's what's really interesting and exciting is the way you describe it is, a, I think, a, a mature idealized reality um and it's great to hear people like yourself trying to plug into that and and figure it out because you could see technology improperly applied does lead to exclusion because it's about efficiency so we replace jobs with uh uh with technology and i think that's the big fear uh but to hear to hear you talk about this really kind of gets at, well, at least what I'm thinking is, is really what is the purpose of work? What is the purpose of work? And, and how does the purpose of work, how does technology apply to the purpose of work? And, and if, it, if the goal of if technology properly applied can improve a person's work and value and cont- contribution to the economy, uh, will they not have greater autonomy, community, some of the things that you were, were listing? Yeah. So, what what do you see as the connection and the exciting point on like the future of work, the purpose of work? Is there anything that you're... All right. So two, two questions that sort of follow up on that. Uh, so if I gave you five hours a week that you couldn't spend with your family and you couldn't spend working, what would you do with it? Fly fish. <laughs> right? Right. You'd find something 
that feeds you. Now, fly fishing isn't easy, right? It is not a pure, like it is an activity that you're doing for, for a purpose at which you get better. You get to decide where you're going to go. I mean, this fits the things. And now fly fishing might not be community, but yeah. Well, I mean, like my current thing is chainsawing on my farm. But that's, okay. That's another story. <laughs> <laughs> right, that. Um, but it's productive things. You know, if you had that time back, and, you know, you would spend it on things that were creating value in your life as you see it. And so to me, this gets into the question of the purpose of work. Now, the, the, this all is premised on a lens where I am not working for survival, mm. right? I have hit a level of material success that means that I'm not thinking about, yeah, as my, my wife's family says, being middle class means never using the phrase gas money. Hmm. Right? Yeah, good it means you never think about how much it costs you to get from point A to point B. Yeah. Right? That's middle class. Okay. So this presumes that you have hit some sort of material level where you're not constantly anxious about money. And then after that, the purpose of work becomes more about the self-actualization. Right. Yeah. What can I do with that? So I think that to me is exciting. The idea that we could, because there's two ways to pull people out of poverty, right? One is uh, you help them through a set of programs to where they, it raises them up out of poverty and you can sort of turn the dials on how much of that is work or work requirement or, you know, program or, you know, there's lots of different ways to go about that, but there's essentially like, do what you're doing and we'll get you to a certain material level. The other thing is to make their labor more valuable. Hmm. So if all of a sudden I was talking yesterday to a startup that does work with home health workers and you know, they're like, Oh, we're, we're starting to recognize that part of the data that we're collecting has value, you know, for these people in their homes. And we might be able to package that, and then offer additional services to insurance companies based on what we know about the people that they insure and they don't know. Well, all of a sudden, that $9 an hour worker is creating value that's more than $9 an hour if he or she knows how to record that data in a clean way and then that goes up into the system. And then, you know, there's some policy things around whether or not the company chooses to pay that person more. But at least that's an option because they're creating more value. Sure. And that's where, like, to me, the idea is how do we empower people to create more value and spend less time doing things that stink? That's great. So back to the quote from, uh, from Daniel Pink in Community, and just kind of what I'm hearing as a theme is just your, your passion for community, for building community, um, realizing the, the purpose of work, and, and giving people autonomy over their work, um, recognizing that some need gas money and they're not there yet. They can't, yeah. they can't yeah, totally. fully realize that. So what, what gives you hope? I mean, in the midst of kind of what we see out there, what we experience, even in the small market of Louisville, Kentucky, the politics of things, like what, what gives you hope? So I think there are two things. Um, one, uh, I'm actually given hope by the idea that a lot of these social ends can be accomplished whether or not you care about the social ends. That we're finally in a place where the math, people are starting to do the math on, oh, turnover in my company is X, so if I create better conditions or better pay, turnover will go down. 
or gosh, I'm paying all this for managing chronic diseases. Wouldn't it be better if we just didn't have those chronic diseases? Like, so you don't actually have to care to, to be invested in creating better outcomes for people. And I, that gives me hope. Um, because there are a certain set of people that actually just don't care that much. Yeah. And I, well, I find that personally but very if you frustrating, them, but like, Hey, listen, you're, yeah, give exactly. them a bottom line reason. Like, right. Hey, this is, and then the other piece is that I think there is actually an increasing vocabulary for talking about that people do care. You know, we've got all this language now around social impact investing or patient capital or, you know, non-traditional capital or access and equity. I mean, all these conversations that we weren't having 10 years ago or we were having in very limited fashions are now really mainstream. And to me, that gives me hope because it gives us a much more nuanced way of engaging people. Like there's a certain set of people that you can say, hey, I want to try and solve this social problem. Will you give me money? And they'll say yes. And that's great, but that's not enough. Uh, it's not, it's, it clearly hasn't worked. Yeah. And so the idea that we could say, well, what if instead of, you know, getting a 4% rate of return, you'd get a 3% rate of return. Uh, and at the same time, or we would do that 4%, but it'd be over 10 years. And at the same time, you can feel really good about how that money is working to create better outcomes. Like, oh, you know, you can make the argument for doing work about recidivism on the basis of this is a social injustice that's happening. Or you can do it on the fact that, hey, you want to know what it costs every time somebody goes back to jail? Both of those arguments work. They let you do different things to different audiences, but to me, what gives me hope is this idea that we're talking about all of those things or the wide range of those things in a way that I don't think we ever have. If you'd like to learn more about Ben and his work, please go to futurelude.com. And if you have a business or social problem that you're trying to solve and have access to a data set that you know has value, but maybe you haven't figured out how to unlock it, email ben at futurelude.com. He'd love to help you solve those problems. I'd also like to announce that we've partnered on an exciting opportunity for entrepreneurs. So if you'd like to learn more, go to render.capital slash competition and apply before May 1st to compete for $100,000 investments. We're doing eight $100,000 investments. Check out render.capital slash competition. Again, if you'd like what you've heard, drop us a review, subscribe, and stay tuned for next week's episode. Check out our work at accessventures.org. I'm Bryce Butler. Thanks for listening.